The Talented Mr. Ripley is based on a masterpiece of crime literature written in 1955 by Patricia Highsmith. It was Highsmith's fifth novel, but in itself it is not wholly dissimilar to Highsmith's first novel, Strangers on a Train. That story, successfully adapted to the screen in 1951 by Alfred Hitchcock, tells of Guy Haynes, who, seeking to divorce his wife, naively gets caught up in the psychotic scheme of Charles Anthony Bruno, who wants to murder his own father. Bruno suggests to Guy that they each swap murders. This magnetic premise is told in a gripping manner, and Bruno seems, in hindsight, to be a forerunner of Tom Ripley. What is a life for two guys? Some people are better off dead. Both are men who see no harm in committing criminal acts because they can rationalise the benefits to themselves. While Bruno is very well off, Ripley is always struggling to make ends meet. So when he is approached by a wealthy Boston couple, the Greenleafs, to go to Europe to find and bring back their wayward son Dickie, Ripley sees it as a chance to escape his financial difficulties. That's my son's talent, spending his allowance. Could you ever conceive of going to Italy, Tom? Persuade my son to come home? I'd pay you a thousand dollars. I have always wanted to go to Europe, sir, but... Good. Now you can go for a reason. In 1960, five years after Highsmith's Ripley first appeared on bookstands, it was brought to the screen by French film director René Clément. Retitled Plan Soleil, or Purple Noon, it was a modestly budgeted but stylish thriller that was not only critically well received, but also made an international star of its leading man, Alain Delon. However, Highsmith had reservations about the adaptation. Although she liked Delon's charismatic portrayal of Ripley, she complained about the ending. It was, she later wrote, a terrible concession to so-called public morality that the criminal had to be caught. The thing about Dickie, so many things. That day, when he was late coming back from Rome, I tried to tell you this. He was with another girl. I'm not talking about Meredith either. Another girl that we met in a bar. He couldn't be faithful for five minutes. So when he makes a promise, it doesn't mean what it means when you make a promise or I make a promise. He has so many realities, Dickie, and he believes them all. He lies. He lies. And that's his... And half the time he doesn't even realize he's doing it. And that is the secret to Highsmith's writing. She presents Ripley's crimes in a straightforward, almost nonchalant manner. In fact, Highsmith's writing leads you so imperceptibly into Ripley's world that what he ends up doing appears normal. The reader then adopts Ripley's attitude and assumes it is the only way to behave in such a world. Sure, our protagonist has bouts of remorse, but those moments are very brief and soon he is back to his murderous ways, by which point we are locked in. Through so closely identifying with Ripley, we not only hope he escapes, we need him to escape, because if he's caught for his crime, we feel his punishment as our own. Did you know that at Princeton, Dickie Greenleaf half killed a boy at a party over some girl? Kicked the kid several times in the head, put him in the hospital. Boy had a wire fixed in his jaw, lost some hearing. 
Why do you think Dickie's father sent him to Europe in the first place? The Rome police didn't think to ask Mr. Greenleaf. Nor did they think to check on whether a Thomas Ripley had ever been a student at Princeton University. Oh, I, I turned up a Tom Ripley, who had been a piano tuner in the music department. Now, here is another story about someone who, aspiring to a life of wealth and comfort, commits a murder out on a boat. George Eastman, a young man of very meagre means, secures a job at his uncle's factory. Doing well at work, he is invited up to the big mansion on weekends. There he meets and falls in love with the beautiful and very wealthy Angela Vickers. But things are complicated because there is a girl at the factory, Alice Tripp, whom George has been seeing. Alice is pregnant by George, and try as he might, George simply can't get Alice to agree to an abortion. So, George takes Alice out on a lake with the intention of killing her. Sound familiar? It's the plot of A Place in the Sun, an Oscar-winning film from 1950 directed by George Stevens, starring Montgomery Clift, Elizabeth Taylor and Shelley Winters. It was adapted from an 800-page novel written in 1925 by Theodore Dreiser, which Dreiser himself based on an infamous crime from upstate New York in 1906. Then, Chester Gillette, an ambitious nephew of a wealthy industrialist, was tried and convicted of murdering his pregnant girlfriend, 20-year-old Grace Brown. Dreiser called his novel an American tragedy and used the murder trial to decry what he saw as his nation's alarming pursuit of wealth for its own means. Dreiser portrayed his protagonist as someone who has the ability to ingratiate himself into any social group, but who can do so because he is morally corrupt, a little bit like Tom Ripley. Now that you're a double agent and we're going to string my dad along, what if we were to buy a car with your expense money? Okay. Great. Hello, Tom. Hello. Marge, Marge, what do you think? A little cinquecento with my dad's money. Oh, please, Dickie, you can't even drive a car. You can't even drive. Now, what we need urgently, Tom, is an icebox. What do you think? Agree with me and I'll be your friend for life. I absolutely agree with Marge. But where Dreiser saw his character as tragic, Highsmith saw Ripley as something else entirely. What Highsmith was really writing about, and this is what makes her novel a masterpiece, is the theme of someone having a double. One a normal, well-adjusted personality, and the other a pathological killer. Highsmith got her idea not from Dreiser, but from the writings of 19th century Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky, Specifically, Crime and Punishment, Notes from the Underground, and most explicit of all, The Double. You could hardly expect this to go on forever, Tom. Well, you can write again. Especially now we're brothers. I can't. can I in all decency? <laughs> you said it yourself. It's my dad's money you're spending. You've had a great run, though. Haven't we? Well, we'll still go to Venice. I mean, we could, we could stick to that plan. I don't think so, Tom. Now. I mention all of that because in 1999, a second version of Highsmith's novel was released. Written and directed by Anthony Mangella, it came in the wake of Mangella's previous picture, the multi-Oscar winning The English Patient. Boasting a cast that today would make your head spin, it has Matt Damon in the title role, 
Jude Law in a star-making turn as Dickie Greenleaf, Gwyneth Paltrow, who had just bagged her Oscar for Shakespeare in Love, and that is not to mention the future Oscar winners, Kate Blanchett, and the late and much lamented Philip Seymour Hoffman. The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Now, there's only one thing I value in this world, Stephen, and that's loyalty. And without it, you are nothing. And you have no one. I did everything I could. We're all hurtling towards death. As was so often the case in his career, Hoffman took what appeared to be a small part and planted his character onto the screen in a most indelible fashion. As delivered by Hoffman, Freddie Miles is a perfect foil for Tom Ripley because it is Freddie, before anyone else, who suspects Tom for what he is. And why does Freddie pick up on the clues before anyone else? It's because he recognises himself in Tom Ripley. Hey, now, I want this job of yours, Tommy. I was just saying, you live in Italy, you uh, stay at Dickie's house, eat Dickie's food, wear his clothes. And his father picks up the tab. <laughs> uh, if you get bored, you let me know, because I'll do it. <laughs> the reason why Mingella was drawn to the novel was because, when he read it as a young man, he instantly identified with Highsmith's awkward, ambitious anti-hero. You see, Mingella was a son of working-class Italian parents, and growing up on the Isle of Wight, he spent his weekends working the family ice cream van, serving the rich kids who came to visit the island for fun. When he was promoting the film, Mengele admitted that to him, every English person was a Dickie Greenleaf. Which goes some way to explain why Mengele went to such extremes to make Tom Ripley so sympathetic. Lurking beneath the surface of Highsmith's novel is a story not necessarily of a sociopathic killer. No, deeper than the sociopathology is Ripley's carefully coded life of repressed sexuality. In Plan Soleil and under René Clément's direction, Alain Delong's good looks brilliantly captured the intricacy of Ripley's mercurial charisma. But what was absent from that version was Ripley's mercurial sexuality. While Delong's Ripley is clearly a sociopath, Matt Damon's performance represents a more sympathetic figure, a young man filled with a self-loathing that stems not from his sexuality, but his psychology. Tom Ripley does not know who he is. Mengele's adaptation is extremely satisfying, offering as it does several motifs that nurture the film's visual code. Notice the number of mirrors and shiny surfaces that reflect, distort, and transform Ripley's face. And then notice also how often the dialogue refers to the appearance of things. Mingela conjures these changes in order to measure the dimensions of Tom's character. And while the opening credits tell us that he is the mysterious, yearning, secretive, sad, lonely, troubled, confused, loving, musical, gifted, intelligent, beautiful, tender, sensitive, haunted, passionate, talented Mr. Ripley. None of these adjectives can sum up Tom. Instead, we must refer to an animal, the chameleon. Count the number of times he changes his name, switches the parting in his hair, wears Dickie's clothes and jewellery, adopts the phrases, 
manners and voices of other people, and all the while simply flat-out lies. Yet despite our knowing that Tom is a killer, we do want him to escape. This contradiction mirrors Tom's own journey. He has to find himself, and the only way he can do so is to stop lying to others, and above all himself. Because he fails to do so until it is far too late, the film closes where it began, with Tom trapped in his room, his closet door swinging slowly and tragically shut.